opening the service and praying for us that we are bringing our worship to the Lord. Adrian, thank you for leading us as a church in communion. And thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. All right, who's ready to study some scripture? Yeah, let's get in the Word. Let's open our Bibles. Ever say Word. We are in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now, I'm not sure if you've had this experience. Uh, we've all had this experience where you go to download a new app or maybe log in for the first time on the computer or an established account on social media or whatever we're doing online. We're, we're constantly bombarded with user agreements. You know what I'm talking about? User agreements? Uh, anybody read those things? No. No, I mean, it takes a lawyer, right? Like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like scrolling, sign away my only child, you know, my child, sign away my house, wear a banana suit the rest of my life. I don't know what I'm agreeing to. And I just click uh, accept. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You just scroll and scroll and scroll and hit agree. Well, here's the thing. We, we can take a very similar approach to following Jesus. You know, where we, we just kind of scroll and scroll and scroll through Scripture, and we make this commitment, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree, and I, I check the box without really considering the cost. Hmm. Because buried in the fine print of Scripture, we come to discover that when we check the box to follow Jesus— we are literally signing away our life. Well, last week we left off with Jesus and the early disciples. We were looking Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 14, uh, or verse 13 is where we're picking up. And we, we came in, in, into the presence of a Roman, uh, Roman centurion, Gentile Roman centurion, as we entered into the city of Capernaum with Jesus and his disciples. And, and we all remember his plea. My servant is lying sick at the point of death. This Roman centurion gives us a clear picture of who to turn to. I mean, here's the question. Who is the one who can raise the dead? Who is the one that can heal the sick and set free the oppressed and the possessed by the demonic? Who can liberate those riddled and addicted with sin? There is only one person that we can turn to, and his name is Jesus. And we saw this most radical display of faith uh, found anywhere in all of the land of Israel to that point. It developed in front of us like one of those old Polaroid snapshots. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it started off, we kind of dimly saw the picture, but as the scriptures unfolded before us, we saw more and more this incredible picture of faith. And I want to reorient our minds to that. Last week we looked at five faith points. This is what true faith looks like on display as we saw in the life of the Gentile Roman centurion. First, in crisis, true faith leads us to humbly seek Jesus. You know, often that's not the first thing we do in crisis. But oh, the spiritual life that, that we tap into when we do. That true faith leads us to seek Jesus humbly in crisis. Secondly, true faith trusts in the sovereign authority of Jesus. And when I say that, that also means the sovereign plan. Well, it's hard to trust in the plan of Jesus, isn't it? You ever find yourself in your spiritual life like, what's the plan? 
What are you doing? What am I supposed to be doing? Maybe some of you find yourselves there this morning. But true faith trusts in the sovereign authority and plan of Jesus. True faith makes Jesus marvel. I mean, Jesus was, was in awe of the faith of this Gentile Roman centurion. That we read in the scriptures that when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Oh, let it be so. Fourth, we looked at true faith leads to eternal feasting with Jesus, that when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will recline, not just serve the table, like I would be content to serve the table, but we will recline at table with the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And we concluded last week seeing that true faith leads to answered prayers. It's one of the, the most exciting things about prayer, that when we pray, we see God move in a way that we know only He can answer, and it is Him that is moving in power. Well, we're told in the Gospel of Mark that following the healing of the centurion's servant, that Jesus and His disciples stayed in the city of Capernaum for a while. We don't know how long, but we do know that they were crashing at Peter's house. And on no particular Saturday, the disciples and Jesus, they got up and they went into the synagogue. And when I say synagogue, and you hear that word synagogue in Scripture, just understand that the early church kind of based the framework of their gatherings on what took place in the synagogue. And so Jews would gather together, and they would come together for prayer. At times they would sing from the Psalms. They came together to hear Scripture read and taught. And so on this particular Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples entered into the synagogue, and Jesus took his rightful seat as the rabbi, and he began to teach. And what was shocking for those who were in the synagogue on this particular Saturday, and by the way, wouldn't it be incredible to just be in a certain, like to sit and listen to Jesus teach scripture? You know what I mean? Like he is the embodiment of the word of God. That way, everything he spoke was scripture. And the, the people listened, and they were in awe. They were, they were like, he speaks with authority. He speaks with the authority of heaven and not like one of the scribes. And as we see and we'll see time and again in the Gospels that Jesus' authority in his teaching and preaching was validated and substantiated by the miraculous. That Jesus had authority in his teaching, the authority of heaven and earth, and it was demonstrated in his authority over sickness and his authority over the demonic. And on that particular Sabbath, there was within the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He was possessed by a demon. And Jesus, with just a word, delivered that man from demonic possession, which left everybody in the synagogue asking, who is this guy? And at the end of the, the service at the synagogue, Jesus and the disciples made their way back to Peter's house, and we're told that that word of Jesus spread around Galilee and the surrounding regions. I mean, this is long before social media, but by word of mouth. And we've already seen large crowds following Jesus, and more and more word spread of this great teacher and healer, and that is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, that is, as they left the synagogue, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Listen to this. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and began to serve him. 
You know, as we read this, we're, we're kind of like comparing it to other miracles. Like sometimes I read this, I'm like, eh, just a small fever, huh? Like, I mean, we've seen him cast out demons, and we've seen him heal and raise the dead. We're like, eh, just a little fever. Like, wouldn't a little aspirin be the solution here? But when we read fever, and we read fever in the context of the first century, this could potentially lead to death. This was fever of body. And Jesus, with just a touch, and I, I don't know if you've ever had an extended period of fever. For some of us going through COVID, that's what it was. It was like the never-ending fever. It weakened your body. And it took time to recover. But with just a touch, the fever didn't just leave or break. She was restored in wholeness. As Dr. Constable in his study notes says this, this miracle shows Jesus' power to heal people fully, instantaneously, and completely. There was no need for recovery. She was restored whole. And I love this picture. Because the moment she's healed, she begins to do what? To serve. You know, that, that's my experience in my life. As I experience the healing of Jesus in and through the gospel, and by the way, it's not just a healing for eternity, but I experience more and more healing in my life as I surrender more and more of my life to Jesus. I experience healing of heart and soul and mind, and there's this sense of reciprocity that when I am healed, I want to serve. I want to be of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be of service to my fellow believers, and I want to be of service to all people. That when I am healed, I serve. And I, in fact, find more and more healing through serving others. And, and I want you to hold on to this. We are most like our Savior when we serve. We are most like our Savior when we serve. I want you to put this verse to memory, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We are most like our Savior when we serve. And I, I love this picture of Peter's mother-in-law. We don't get a whole lot about her, but I love what I read about her. Because the second she's healed, she is serving. Such a picture of hospitality. You know, it's one of those things that, that crosses my mind occasionally. Among so many Christians, where are all the servants? Among so many believers, where are all the floor sweepers and table setters? Where are all the servants? Not just servant of King self, but a surrendered servant of the Lord Jesus and of others. Well, after a good meal provided, I imagine, by Peter's, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Any of y'all have a mother-in-law that cooks real good? Yeah, Stephen. His hand went up like, right? He's like, I, don't, I think I know where this question's going. <laughs> I mean, a good old meal, you know? And after a, a, a really a big early day of ministry, I'd imagine they took a bit of a rest and they're relaxing. But as the sun began to dip below the horizon, a massive crowd began to fill the streets of Capernaum outside the house of Peter and really converging on the door, the entryway to Peter's home. 
And when I say crowd, I'm talking about like the, the most ragged and messy group of people that we have seen to date in the scriptures. Matthew 8, verse 16 the scriptures tell us that evening they brought many. When, when you read that word they, I want you to kind of underline that, and I want you to think about, well, who are they? You know, when you read in the scriptures and you have a question, ask the question, they, who are they? Well, in the context, they are, are family members of friends or friends of the sick and the hurting. They're family members or friends of the sick and the hurting. And they're doing something rather peculiar. They are bringing everyone they know who is sick or demon-possessed or hurting to Jesus for healing. I mean, what would it be like if we went out and we got all our family members and friends and neighbors and people and coworkers who are hurting? Don't believe what's on the surface. You know, often I'll ask a person, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. On Facebook, I'm spectacular. <laughs> how are you doing? And, and, then, and then I usually ask, well, or how, how are you really doing? And, and some people get all weird and they're like, are you looking in my soul? I'm like, yes, and it's dirty. <laughs> like, no, I can't see your soul. But how are you really doing? And it's, it's crazy. Because just beneath the thin veneer of I'm fine and good or social media spectacular is I'm suffering. I'm scared. I'm sick. I feel hopeless. I mean, how often do we hear of a person that harms themselves and, and, and everybody goes, I had no idea. See, so we ask and we really care. It's like we get beneath the veneer in people's lives and we say, how are you really doing? And when, they, when they're honest, you're like, come with me. I want to bring you to the healer. I want to introduce you to the one who will heal you from the innerness of your being. Oh, that we would bring our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and to those in our life that they could know Jesus too and be healed by him. And on that evening, they brought to him many, listen to this, this description in verse 16, who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and he healed all who were sick. I mean, think about this group. There were people probably shrieking and screaming and cursing. Some were catatonic and mute. Others limping. Others were being carried. Some were riddled with leprosy and fever. There were people with broken limbs and, and unhealed limbs. And we're told that with just a word, they were, they were free. With just a touch, they were healed. Like, who is this Jesus who can command the demons and they obey? Who can just deliver sickness with a touch? And, and I just imagine, like, what this would have been like if I was standing on those, like, cobbled streets of Capernaum. What it would have sounded like? You would have heard laughter and rejoicing. There'd be dancing. I've been healed. I've been healed. Jesus has healed me. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's what church was like? 
You know, we came in here and we're like, I've been healed. I've been healed. Jesus has healed me. We're healed. Matthew, as he often does, turns our attention back to the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. Who is this? This is the Messiah. Matthew 8, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. He, being Jesus, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus heals. Now some today will look at this particular verse and in this context and they'll say, see? Jesus heals every sickness and, and every ailment and every disease. He'll heal you right now. It is, it is the impetus of the faith healing movement where healers walk around and claim that they can heal any person. And I w I'm like, that would be wonderful if that were true. I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? Like we never had to get sick again, you know? And we never had any ailments, and we never had any issues, and we didn't have arthritis. Like, and we could just be healed all the time. But then I'm like, isn't that heaven? And what it does is it sets up a, a, an unrealistic expectation. And some leave the church because they're like, well, then, then God doesn't love me because he didn't heal me. You see, what this is actually talking about is a far greater healing. And in fact, I'm going to read to you the context of, of where this verse is found. It is found in the great chapter of the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Verses 4 through 7 is, is the, the passage I will read to us. Because Jesus has provided for us a healing. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Verse 5, you see, he was pierced for our transgressions 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. The, the cross is declared. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, that is a peace that is established with God through the suffering and death of Christ. And it is a healing that is not just in the here and now, but forever. You see, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You see, we are the sick sheep. <laughs> and so Jesus took on our sheepness, right? He took on our sin. And he suffered and died, pierced to a cross to purchase our salvation. By the wounds of Christ, we are eternally healed. While in this life, we will face times and seasons of all sorts of sicknesses and pain. But in the life to come, there will be no sickness no tormenting spirits, no paralysis, nor blindness. There will be no deafness or cancer, no 
fevers, no need for insulin, no addictions, no abuse or neglect, no racism or bigotry, and there won't even be a single ounce of cellulite. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> All the ladies in the house of what? Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Boy, it's really easy to lose heart, isn't it? Because the circumstances of this life are rough. And it's easy to lose heart, but we don't. Because we're holding on to something greater. Though our outer self is wasting away. I think some of us feel like that, like we're just wasting away. But check this out. Our inner self, our soul is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. How could, do you know what I'm going through? How could you call this light and momentary? What it's being compared to makes the, the worst of the worst of this life something that is considered light and momentary. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means the things that we experience, the day in, the day out life, it's, it's passing away. That's why humanity is compared to a blade of grass. It grows up. The breath of the Lord blows on it and it withers. We're here for a moment. But we live for eternity. And we focus on the things that are unseen, which are eternal. Don't lose heart, for we will reap a harvest in due time. You see, Jesus is our great healer. He's our great liberator. He has broken every eternal chain. He has broken down the walls of hostility. He has defeated sin and death, and he's raised us up to live a new life. Praise Jesus. No, no, no. I mean it. Praise Jesus. Use the instruments called your hands. Let's praise Jesus this morning. Come on. Use your mouth to praise Jesus. Use your hands to praise Jesus. Use your body to praise Jesus. Use every fiber of your being to praise Jesus, down to the cellular level. You see, what you need more than anything, what we need more than everything is, is we need a heart of praise to worship. You want to talk about seeing life through a new pair of glasses? Start worshiping. And all of a sudden, you see the world that God has created. You see the people that God loves and died for. You find the opportunities to be of service. You lay down your life, and you take up your cross, and you follow the king. That is what happens when we begin to truly praise him. And so as that evening drew to a close, the streets around the house grew quiet. Imagine they, they trimmed the wicks of the, the burning lamps in the home. Peter and his wife and family and the disciples and kids that were in the house, everybody just kind of quieted down for the night. And we're told in the Gospel of Mark that early the next morning, before the sun even broke the horizon, Jesus was up. I mean, he had poured himself out all that Saturday. But that next morning on Sunday morning, he was up early. Boy, it's good getting up early on Sundays, isn't it? 
Yeah, we go spend time with God. You know, someone was just asking uh, Madeline, my wife, this week, so what is it? Like, do you go to church? Like, do you get, like, are you getting filled up, like, with, with God? We're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we come. And it's so crazy because the woman that's asking her these questions isn't a believer. She doesn't know anything about it, but she sees something. You know, family, people notice. They notice Jesus in you. They notice, like, when you talk about, like, what God is speaking into your life, and sometimes we're, like, we're kind of bashful about it, but you know, here's the deal. Own it. If you are a Jesus follower, talk about Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing in my life. People who don't believe in Jesus really don't have a problem with you talking about your faith. They're actually curious. And so early in the morning, Jesus rises and he's in prayer and he's spending time with his father. And, and he gets word. I imagine the father's like, okay, it's time to move on. And Peter and the other disciples are like, Jesus, where are you, Jesus? Hey, there's a crowd here. It's time to get started again. Let's fire up the miracles. And Jesus gets up from prayer. You know, I, I, I know Jesus probably was never irritated, but you know when you're in that moment and you're like in that sweet spot and then like one of your children screams? Yes, what can I do for you? <laughs> Verse 18 of Matthew 8. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. This is crazy because there's a crowd. This would be a perfect opportunity. Set up shop in Capernaum. Be the region's healer. Like this is, this is, this is huge. This is an opportunity. Let's build a big amphitheater and let's, let's get as many people to gather every single week and, and let's just do this and build a bigger, bigger, bigger. And Jesus is like, it's time to get in the boat. See, we've got some work to do across, across the lake. There's a, there's a couple of guys that are, that are riddled with demons that nobody cares about, and they live among the tombs. Oh, and by the way, we've got to face a storm real quick. <laughs> You'll think that's fun. I need a nap. <laughs> you, you guys are going to need some real help. It's time to cross the lake. And we see in this, this moment a couple, of, a couple of guys who step up and they're like, you know what? I'm ready to get in the boat with you. I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus is like, okay, hold on a second. Let's pull out the user agreement. <laughs> Let's look at the fine print. Because sometimes it's really easy for us to say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus anywhere. I'll give up anything. I'll follow you, Jesus, especially like when it's good weather, you know? We love following Jesus when it's good weather. The bank account's full. Everyone's healthy. You got the heated seats, the air-conditioned seats in the car. That's a weird vibe. I don't know. Like sitting in an air-conditioned seat, it's pretty sweet. You're like, life is good. Yeah, I follow Jesus. But then we read the user agreement. And we're like, uh, I really have to pray about that. So a man approaches Jesus as, as he's preparing to cross. Imagine Peter, James, John, Andrew, they're getting the boat ready. And a scribe comes up, verse 19, and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, this is a pretty radical commitment. 
Wherever you go, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And I imagine at the moment it seemed awesome. I mean, he just watched all those miracles. He heard Jesus' teaching. Crowds are gathering. He's like, I wouldn't mind being on the platform with you, man. I, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, hey, let's look at a little fine print. Because I don't think you know what you're asking. Verse 20, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know what he's telling the man? It's going to cost you. You see, Jesus uses this beautiful illustration of, of, of wild animals. He's like, foxes, they have burrows, and birds, they have nests. But the Son of Man, and I love, every time you read Son of Man in your Bible, I want you to underline that twice. And I want you to find a little spot in your margin and write Messiah. It's an ancient title. And this is staggering. The Messiah has no place to lay his head. And Jesus isn't saying like he, he was always homeless. I mean, they, they just had been staying at Peter's house. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus didn't own any possessions. He didn't have a piece of property. He didn't have a financial advisor. But he did have a kingdom. A kingdom that we're invited to enter. But to enter, we must be willing to sign away our very life. I wonder how many in the church, not just this church, but that church, would turn away from following Jesus if it meant poverty. And I'm talking poverty. Nothing. And then I think about the missionaries. The church has this incredible history of missionaries who are called into missions and they're called into regions of earth that are impoverished. Their hearts break for the abandoned children found in cities deep in India who bathe themselves in, in toilet water running down the side of the road. There are missionaries who've been called to places like Mozambique and, and Haiti and they love, and they bring the gospel, and they give up absolutely everything. Would you be willing to go if he called you? If he called you right now to leave everything and to go into global missions, would you go? You see, this man, when he heard this, he kind of drifted back into the crowd. He's like, oh, that's, that's pretty high price. I'm not ready to check that box. And then another gentleman steps up. And he's like, okay, check this out, Jesus. I'm ready to follow you, but, but not right now. <laughs> I got some other things I got to take care of first. But hey, when those things are taken care of, I'm fully following you. Like, I'm totally in. But just not right now. Verse 21, another of the disciples said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And on the surface, you read that, and you're like, that's pretty reasonable. Uh, Jesus, he's got a funeral to go to. Uh, but that's not actually what's happening. In fact, many commentators believe what this guy is doing is he's using the law 
as a way to justify like an excuse for not following Jesus. It's like saying, I want to follow Jesus, but I just can't right now. And the reason I can't right now is I got to obey the law because the law tells me to honor my father and my mother, and I don't want to break the law, so. I wonder how often we, we use the scriptures as some way of like excuse. Well, the scriptures tell me I got to take care of my family, so I can't really give to the church. Slash, I'm saving up for my new boat. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I would go and do that, but I just don't feel called. What a lame excuse. I remember sitting in a, a group of friends, we were in this class together, and, and it was time to clean up the room. Because the people were, they were just slobs. You ever been around slobs? I shouldn't say, I'm a slob. I just, if you ever went into my office, you'd be like, oh my gosh, how'd that get up there? But it was time. It was like, okay, guys, let's clean. And I'll never forget it. This guy looked at me. This is a ministry school. I'm not called to clean. I was like, what? It's just not my calling. We got to get over ourselves. We're called to be of service. Yeah? And to not use the scriptures or some concept of calling where we don't feel like doing something. That's what you do. We should just be honest. I just don't feel like it. But what's what's interesting to me is, is Jesus gives the man a very direct command. He says two words, follow me. And it's the same exact command that he gave to his disciples in Matthew chapter 4, 18. Flip into your, in, back into your Bible, Matthew 4. Let's look at these verses together. Verses 18 through 22. Because it is the most radical response to the command that Jesus gives. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother. Jesus is like, he didn't just see him, he's calling him. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, because that's what fishermen do. They cast a net into the sea. Fishermen fish, which is why yesterday I was fishing, because fish are in. Anybody know the Rowlett Creek? Fish are in? Anyway. I really like fishermen, because I'm a fisherman. Anyway, he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Like, I hear that, I'm like, oh, that means you go anywhere and everywhere where people are, and you fish. And what does it say? Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They left their source of income. They left their boats and their nets, and they followed. Jesus walks down the beach a little further. He runs into James and John, who are mending the nets and their father's boat. It's Zebedee and son's business, fishing. And Jesus says the same thing to James and John, follow me. And we read... In, in verse 22, immediately they left the boat and who? And their father. Think about the excuse the guy just gave in Matthew 8. They left their boat and their father and followed him. It was not dishonoring for them to leave the family business to follow Jesus because Jesus comes first. Back to Matthew 8. 
Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What Jesus is saying, he's like, no excuses. No more hiding behind mom and dad. The time to follow is now. And what's crazy to me is at this moment, these men had the opportunity to follow Jesus in his earthly ministry. And we have the opportunity to follow Jesus today. But the user agreement, they read the the terms and they just kind of drifted back into the crowd. Sometimes we treat our commitment to follow Jesus like that never-ending user agreements. The things we sign, we're like, blah, blah, blah. Where do I put the check mark? Following Jesus is not just another wordy user agreement. To turn in your Bibles... Matthew 16. I'm going to read you the terms of the contract. This is where we'll end this morning. I say end. This never ends. The Christian life doesn't end. We don't just close our Bibles and go about our week and forget. We keep our Bibles open during the week. Because Jesus is going to speak to us every single day. Matthew 16 starting in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, anyone, anyone in here, if anyone in here is going to come after Jesus, listen to this, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Cross, symbol of suffering. It's a cost. Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You live for you, you're going to lose it. But whoever lays down their life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. You want to live a real life, a full life? Give up everything. I'm not talking about like you walk out of here and just like, okay. Throw the keys in the trash. I don't have a car anymore. I don't have a house anymore. No, no, no. This is putting Jesus first above everything. So here's the question. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Students, listen up. Sometimes I know you think that you're in here and you're like, this isn't for me. This is the adult service. You actually have the potential of setting the race of faith that we would follow. That you would be a testimony. How God has powerfully used the young throughout the history of the church. You're being convinced today and sold the lie that that if you gain the world, you have everything. What will it profit you to gain the world but lose your soul? It'll be eternal loss. Don't believe the lie. And that goes for everyone in here. For the Son of Man, listen to this, verse 27, is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's really where the rubber meets the road, right? Like that moment when Jesus returns. There's that, oh no. I should have done this, and I should have done that, and I could have done this, and I could have done that. Let's not be the shoulda, couldas kind of Christians. You know what I mean? 
Let us be found about his work. Hand of the plow, not looking back. Sold out for Christ. That is where we find our true life. Amen? All right, Lord Jesus. We have studied your word this morning. We've turned our hearts and our minds to it. I pray that you would take uh, these words that, Lord, I have spoken. Lord, just the things that are of you, let them be empowered by your Holy Spirit to permeate heart and mind and to bring about transformation that we would no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we'd be conformed to your truth, that we'd be building our life on a rock and not shifting sands. Now, more and more of our soul and our life is just laid at your feet that when you say follow and you're telling us to follow you, you're telling us to follow you as individuals and to follow you as a church, that we would leave it all behind to follow you. Send us where you send us. Lead us where you lead us. Call us to the things we're called to do. And may we not make excuses today for the incredible work that will literally resonate for eternity. Give us greater faith today. And for you, who has never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, please listen to this. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he is risen. And the Bible declares that if you place your faith in him, you trust in him, his work on the cross, you will be delivered from death and darkness to life and light. Apart from Jesus, you have no eternal life. That if you were to die at this very moment, you would spend eternity separated from the living God. The moment of salvation is now. Don't wait. If that is you today and you want to give your life to Jesus in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried, and I believe you, were, you have risen, just as the scriptures teach. I ask for forgiveness for my sins. Please save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, you've spiritually passed from death to life. You are forever a son or daughter of the living God. And now you get to begin the greatest adventure of your Jesus, we love you, we worship you, we adore you. In your name we pray, amen. Family, let's stand together. For it's time. Remember, we don't just close the Bible and go about our week. We keep it open during the week, amen? Yeah, it's time to go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all till we meet again next week. I know, same time, same place, right? And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now, let's lavish that love on one another, and let's go rock the community, surrounding cities, Rowlett, Saxe, Wiley, Rockwall, Dallas. Let's go rock the streets with the love of Jesus. Amen? All right. Have a great week.